the Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Hey folks, Jason Bond from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom is here as always, and Dr. Steve Martin is here with us too. Thank you for joining us this afternoon, Steve. Thank you for asking me. This is Thursday. What is today? The 10th, It's Tom? the 10th of June. All yeah. right. It's June the 10th, and when we started recording these this morning, we, what you're going to hear is a series of, of little snippets from the different crops guys. So it's been raining all week. Parts of the Delta and parts of the state, it's been raining more than it has in other parts of the state. So what we wanted to do is just get the guys on here and talk about corn and talk about cotton, soybeans, rice, and the crops that are affected by this flooding event that that we've encountered so we asked steve to come on and just give some thoughts on extension and what our role is in helping guys make decisions as we move beyond this event through the rest of the year so steve what's how does extension play into something like this that that we're experiencing right now well extension is part of the uh, mema network uh, has a role in that Oftentimes, in natural disasters, we're activated, whether that be a tornado, hurricane, flood, or whatever. That works through uh, the boss building there. Uh, when MEMA requires us to come or ask us to come to do ag damage assessments or um, fill other roles, sometimes there's needs for uh, sheltering, and, and we have people that can handle that. We have been activated in some counties uh, already for ag damage assessment based on this flood. And then at the at the specialist level, which you guys are, and, and some on campus as well, uh, as this water recedes, there'll be questions about whether do we need to keep this crop or, or what do we do with it after that. A lot of it's going to depend on, on what crop insurance people have and, and what that is dictated to them, whether it's a replant decision or a loss. And, you know, we can help. We have some people in the Ag Econ department that do educational programs on uh, crop insurance, but in this case, it's probably going to depend more on the insurance with what their adjuster and what their company tells them they need to do. It's kind of, it's been a unique rain event because it's uh, untimely. Usually we don't have this type of flooding this late in the year. Maybe it's earlier in the year. So it's going to be uh, some tough decisions, you know, depending on what crop it is and what stage that crop is. But one way or the other, uh, we'll come through it. It's not the first flood in the Delta. With uh, everybody working together, we'll, we'll manage to make it through it. We certainly appreciate you taking a few minutes on a day off at that to come by and, and visit with us for a second. So just to give you all an idea of what you're going to hear for the rest of this episode, if you glanced at it before you hit play, you're going to notice that it's really long compared with what we normally do. And, but we also you know, have a lot of folks that contributed to it. So just in the order of the crops, uh, we had, Tom, help me out here. We had corn. We had corn. And then we had cotton and fertility. That's right. Then we did soybean. Correct. And then we did rice. So if you're more interested in one of those than the other, you can kind of skip around and get to the content that's most relevant for you. So they're going to be kind of choppy. Because we had some folk call in, some folks came to the studio, so just bear with us on the, the quality of the episode. It's going to be a little bit different than what we're uh, what you're accustomed to hearing from us, but we hope that the, the information that's there, it will be helpful. Well, we thought from a timeliness standpoint, this was important to do rather rapidly, 
and in most cases we couldn't get everybody from campus over here and that's just the way things typically go so having the ability to get them to call in was important for sure so again corn first and then cotton plus fertility and kind of fertility across crops with justin mccoy and then trent came on and talked with us about soybeans and then tom and i wrapped up with rice okay We've got Eric Larson on the phone here. Good to be here. Hey, Eric. How are you, man? I'm doing relatively well. So, Eric, corn with the flooding that's going on, what are some things as the water begins to recede, you know, hopefully in the next few days, what are some things that we need to think about for this crop? Well, the first thing I'd be worried about is whether it's going to survive or what kind of major effects it would have on, on plant function. Um, and I've been here for a good while. I'm certainly not a native of Mississippi, but during the last 25 plus years, I can't remember ever experiencing a flood this late in the season on corn that was, you know, larger. Um, you know, a lot of our corn is tasseling or close to tassel. The good thing about that is that um, its water use is high and it can tolerate flood water at this time probably better from a survivability standpoint than what it could if it was small like it usually is when we when we see flood water so um, it may survive but um, you know depending upon how long the water is on the fields the rule of thumb there I guess is that um, I don't know if we have any rule of thumb to start with I guess but um, certainly something on that that's flooded for you know, more than three to four days is going to limit some of the abilities of the plants to, you know, perform their basic life functions and may affect their survivability if the water doesn't come off within, um, you know, four or five days probably. And, and that number, that length of time is highly dependent upon what the temperatures are. The cooler the temperatures are, the the better the plants can tolerate the flood water. Uh, if the flood water is moving and has more aeration in it, that will help as well. But it, it's it's all getting back to an aeration thing, and those plants need to have aeration um, in order to survive. So the forecast for the weekend, Eric, is for some temperatures, probably the warmest temperatures we've had, high, high temperature-wise, for the year. So. Right here in Stoneville, we're forecasted for, you know, low 90s, 92, 93 over the next three or four days. I think it's supposed to moderate a little bit next week, but uh, I think it's going to be hot, you know, for the next few days. So could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Because I think what you're describing is plants basically drowning, right? Yeah, basically so. Um, you know, they need aeration in order to survive perform their basic life functions and the longer they go without that aeration the uh, the more it's going to basically shut them down to the point where um, not only can they not photosynthesize and, and perform some other functions keeping themselves cool in other words through transpiration and other things like that but uh, it may affect their survivability if uh, if the water stays on the corn for like a week or more or something like that, I'm guessing on corn that's that's at tasseling or around that growth stage. Eric, what about stem strength? You pick a depth, but, you know, if water's been up on the stem and say it's been on the stem for two or three days, how does that affect the strength of that stem, assuming that the field survives? It could cause 
plants to lodge at this point of the season, which is not a good thing um, because corn that is at tasseling or near tasseling has finished its vegetative growth and, and its ability to stand back up from lodging at that time is, is not good at all. It will gooseneck its stem and try to get as vertical as it can so that it can function as well as possible, but lodging at, uh, at tasseling or after is, is going to sustain itself in a lodging problem that the plants are, are not going to recover from very well. Now, if your corn is mid-chest high or less and it lodges because of the wind and the, and the flood water and so forth, then it generally stands back up within several days. Um, the difference here is that if there's flood water on the field, it's going to reduce the root root's ability to function as well, and that, that may take longer and it'll be a lot more difficult process to sustain because, it, you know, not only because of the flood water, but because the wet soils as well is, is going to uh, just slow down and impede normal root function. Tom, are there disease concerns, particularly if the corn lodges uh, that seems like kind of worst case scenario for diseases to me that's that's a tough question to answer you know and and the questions that i've fielded this year have not been any different than what have occurred in years where there have been more minor flood situations most people get concerned about well what's crazy top going to do because that is a soil-borne organism that tends to be an issue in flooded situations but most of the information that revolves around that particular disease suggests that corn is most sensitive when it's still in vegetative growth stages. So once you've reached more advanced growth stages, such as the tassel or anything that it gets into the reproductive growth stages, those plants should not be near as sensitive to that particular soil-borne organism. But I think that's still probably a little bit of a gray area there. I would tend to think that they're not going to be as affected by that organism the older they are, just because you do get a level of protection from that age on the plant. Now, if the plants have lodged and then gone underwater, there could be some minor issues there. Rhizoctonia could be an issue, but boy, that's just a knee-jerk response. Banded sheath blight is the one that can occur in some situations, but that's been pretty rare in the years that I've been here. It's usually just a few plants here and there that are affected. So I wouldn't think that it would be a much greater acreage impacted by that particular organism. So maybe just a wait and see on the corn diseases. It is a wait and see. I think that's a, that's a temperature dependent and then moisture following when all the flood water gets off. That's, I mean, it's typical, I hate to say it, it's typical disease triangle type situation. Eric, what are the options, kind of worst case scenario, say we lose a field or lose portion of a field what are the options that we have at this point in the season i think everybody probably realizes that the options are pretty slim um you know we're restricted by by herbicide products that have been applied and, and more than likely if you lose a stand of corn at this point um you know you're already restricted to go back with corn or grain sorghum both of those crops planted you know in mid-june have the potential to mature before the first frost in the fall. Um, we do have corn planting date studies that were planted as late as you know, J 
June the 25th. We also have some grain sorghum studies that were planted during that last week of June as well. So, you know, if, if we get into situations where folks are abandoning, have to abandon crop, abandon the crop, or have large areas of fields that are that are destroyed because of flood flooding, then uh, we have some information to help direct them um, regarding their opportunities. But those those opportunities are slim, and obviously the yield potential is going to be reduced. Well, we'll just hope that we don't have a tremendous amount of acres that that end up in that situation. Brian and Justin were actually scheduled to come over today and record a podcast about fertility and cotton, and we'll definitely get that episode out to you. But while they were here, we also wanted to talk to them about some of the things to think about related to cotton and then related to soil fertility, too, uh, with the flood. So, Brian, why don't you tell folks, thinking about cotton in flooded fields and what are some things that begin to think about you know over the next several days as the water starts to go down so when you're talking about nitrogen fertility nitrogen fertilizers a lot of the fertilizer has not been applied yet i mean or or the the first rate's been out and the second is yet to go out so that'd be a top priority and i'd like to Re, uh, I know a lot of guys are wondering about nitrogen losses or how much have we lost at this point. And on this calendar date, I'd like to not get ahead of myself and try to put an additional slug out because on the back end, you know, you, we don't want to run into excessive nitrogen and delay any further delays in maturity. That that would be my number one. And we need to get it out there. There's not a lot of separation between these planting dates. I mean, our cotton just hadn't been growing. So we also need to get it. If, when the weather does turn around, we get some heat, try to get it going in the right direction. What do you think about submerged cotton? I know we, none of us have a lot of experience with that, but how, how is a cotton plant doing after it comes out from underwater? It can take it on the chin when it, when water gets on it. So there's some there's concern, there's concerns there, but I'm hoping that if it's not totally submerged, that we'll be okay. But there's probably going to be some spots that drowned out based on the the rainfall totals i've heard about and what i've seen we're likely to see some scenarios where there's you know could be a a loss there and some of that could be related to water temperature air temperature whether we're getting sun or anything like that at least just in my experience working with some of the other crops and how sun and heat affects those particular plants if there is a flooded situation well, that's the problem. We have not seen the sun in a week for the most part, and the cotton hadn't been growing, and just our heat unit accumulation has been down for the entire year. And and then on the other side of that, when you think about just the physiology of the cotton plant and the leaf cuticles and, and things of that nature, when, it, when the sun does shine, that would be some things that are out of our control. But from like a herbicide standpoint, we come back and try to clean it up. There could be some injury from that so it's a a long road ahead that we're looking at but I think there's just some things to keep in mind when we get out there once we can go look at you know get out in the field and start assessing plant populations things like that on a replant where are we for planting date I know when we had you on before and we had some big rains in the forecast we talked about planting date that's been several weeks ago Mm -hmm. and we were still cool then but obviously middle of june it's a terrible situation 
but what numbers do you have for folks on planting date this late? If you can keep your stand, obviously you want to. And we can withstand a pretty reduced stand in the ballpark of even as low as 15,000 plants per acre. I think that's exact cut off where you really start to see it nosedive but i'd like to see numbers higher than that which equates to usually one and a half to two plants per per foot if you can if you can find that number you should be fine obviously if you have some total losses if you have a field that stays underwater for for days i don't know that it's going to survive that yeah only time will tell but in in the past that's just kind of it's probably going to suffocate well, and I think a lot of that probably depends on whether the water's moving. At least that's always been the conversation I've had with people in the past is how much of that water's flowing. If it's flowing water versus water that looks like it's just standing there in one place, of course, that's, a, that's kind of a nebulous topic to even discuss because a lot of that water just is going to look like it's sitting there for an extended period of time. Well, a lot of it doesn't have anywhere to go. Yeah, uh, that's right. And that's because it all either moves west and then south or south and then west, basically, the Mississippi River. So that's... Cotton, with the growth stage that we're at on a majority of it just being small, you know, that's my concern with it is it basically boiling in the mm-hmm. water. You know, if the sun comes out tomorrow, so we're recording this on Thursday and it's currently pouring down rain outside, but it's, you know, it's supposed to clear up tomorrow and saturday and it's supposed to be hot mm-hmm. so mid 90s you know low 90s that would be my concern with the small plants is just them basically cooking mm-hmm. in that standing water it's not used to the sun it's going to blaze on it and then you know another thought that comes to my mind is you know just the root system we have small plants they haven't had it they have not had a chance to establish any kind of root system and then whenever if it turns hot and dry, you know, there could that could have influenced this all year long. So and we there's strategies you can do to plan for a shallow rooted crop, but everything's pointing in that direction. So Jason, from a herbicide standpoint, have you had any interactions with thin cuticle and then applying pre emergent herbicides in combination with you know, let's say Roundup and Liberty, seeing excessive burn? Anytime that cuticle's thin, you stand a chance of getting a higher level of injury from that post application that includes the residual herbicide. So the one that probably goes on the most acres is some type of metolachlor. So, mm-hmm. you know, dual and all the other products that contain metolachlor. Those are oil based formulations, which makes it can complicate it even more. So if that cuticle's thin, yeah, you stand to have a higher level of injury within reason that hasn't hurt us. Whenever we've done research on that, it looks bad. It's a high level of injury, but the plants recover, particularly in the case of a crop like cotton, which, which is indeterminate. It's got a lot of opportunities to compensate mm-hmm. for that throughout its life cycle. But it's also the middle of June, and you don't want to do anything that's yeah, going to slow down the, right. the vegetative growth. So I think that's definitely something to think about, Brian. Uh, and I don't know that there is a good way around, you know, balancing weed control with injuring my crop. Yeah, there's a trade-off. I guess what I was getting at, too, is oftentimes if it was a normal situation, we'd have this massive tank mix with insecticides, yeah. different herbicides, pre's, and uh, that might be a concern just to maybe dial that back on the initial applications as soon as this moves on. And ordinarily, I wouldn't be 
in favor of that just because I've always said, you know, if you're going across the field, have a residual herbicide in there, but that's under, you know, normal conditions, and this by no means is normal conditions. So, yeah, I'd be, I'd be in favor of that too. Continuing on this topic, Justin, it's, first of all, it's good to see you, and I know that soil fertility really being your main area of expertise, do you have any thoughts really to add to what Brian had kind of talked about from a cotton standpoint as to what the fertility needs will be moving forward in those situations that have been underwater for an extended period of time? Thank you, and um, I'll kind of continue where Brian did with the cotton. Anytime you have water, Involved in soil fertility, it complicates things, um, especially staying in water and the amount of rainfall for as long as we have um, and in this growth stage. As Brian touched on, your main concern initially is going to be those nitrogen applications that may have occurred um, prior to this event. You're going to need to, to watch that. Um, denitrification, leaching on your, on your lighter textured soils is certainly going to be a major concern throughout the, the growing season. Um, with cotton, nitrogen is, is always tricky and can change field-to-field environmental conditions throughout the year. And so that's one of those things that we're just going to have to watch as we go throughout the growing season. Uh, we still have time, hopefully, um, with the second application, we may can address that, watch those plants, how you think your yield potential at, from this point stacks up to your planting date. And like Brian said, we don't want to ha- get to that excessive nitrogen stage where then you're spending money to pick it back down and trying to defoliate early and, and moving into an even later crop. Um, so that's something to watch as we don't want to run- jump out there and jump the gun and pour the nitrogen to those cotton crops, um, particularly in dry land environments, uh, a lot of times those applications go out in a single application instead of a split. So I think it would be particularly one thing to watch if you may have already gotten that whole whole nitrogen shot out there. We may need to actually consider a you know a secondary application. And with those applications, I think you you've got some time there. Um, it's still early on most of our cotton crop. I think if you if, if supplemental nitrogen is needed, we certainly don't want to see a we don't want to see a deficiency, um, but it's something to consider. And I'd say you have an, until until full flower to really make sure you have that last bit of nitrogen to finish that crop out. And so continuing there, the, the next thing with cotton is going to be is going to be potash for me. Um, it's one thing that we see more and more uh, those K deficiencies as they kind of as we've moved to these earlier maturing varieties. Um, we already have a late crop, and when this cotton starts to grow, it's going to grow quick. When it starts to accumulate these heat units, it's really going to shoot up, and you're just going to have to accumulate a lot of potassium in that time. Trouble with that is, it's a hard thing to it's a hard thing to kind of there's, the data doesn't necessarily support an in-season application where you have where you have plenty of available K. Um, but I will say on those instances where it was borderline, maybe you think you might not have enough available K, you were close to making a potassium application, it's something to consider that that available K needs to be plentiful for that cotton crop to get as much into the into its structure as it possibly can. Um, because if you have that K deficiency, it opens itself to diseases. Um, I know particularly in dry land environments, um, we had an instance last year where um, it turned off so dry for almost a month. Um, the earliest maturing varieties on the, it was a later crop, and the earliest maturing varieties uh, we had a heavy rainfall event and came back. It, it almost looked like sticks out there um, because it just did not, was not able to get the K into that plant before they went reproductive. Um, I know Brian, he may have something to add to those applications. Um, that is one of those things. The data is, is kind of tricky in support of that in-season application. I don't know. What are your thoughts particularly on that, Brian? The data that that we see, it's, it's hard to really track that down in the field and uh, 
replicate that every year. Um, but I think this would be a year you might would consider an in-season application, primarily due to the fact that we don't know how much potentially has leached out, as well as it goes back to the root system. We could have adequate soil availability, but the, it might not be in the root zone with the if we have like a poor, poorly rooted cotton plant. Yeah, and so I, I agree with you on that. Um, you know, consider farm to farm, field to field, obviously, you know, take yield potential into that, variety into that. There's a lot of factors when it comes to cotton fertility specifically. Um, and this early season weather that we have is, is going to complicate that. We kind of discussed earlier about the, uh, the corn crop as well with this and that corn that has yet to tassel or yet to receive that tassel application. Those cornfields on the bottom end specifically and cornfields underwater, you're going you're gonna to have great potential for denitrification leaching. That's just that's part of it um, here in the south with the weather we've had. It's, it has happened. It has occurred to some degree on a field that has had water standing on it. Um, absolutely. So something to keep in mind with that tassel application. If your tassel application, if you feel like you have, if you've put enough nitrogen out there with your first two and your tassel was kind of an extra, you know, that's fine. If you accounted for that and your total nitrogen to begin with, you may want to consider running a little bit more. I know fertilizer prices are high. That's a tough thing to call. Um, and again, it's a field to field basis and based on yield potential and, and how you felt that that crop has been stressed and able to handle that nitrogen to this point. Um, but certainly consider and think about that if water stood on a field for, for any amount of time, you had denitrification and leaching take place. Um, it's something to consider with those tassel applications. That's going to be the time to address that. Um, it's really going to be your only shot to address that. And as we discussed in some of our earlier talks when I came on the podcast, you know, if you don't have enough nitrogen out there to make a corn crop, you're not going to make a corn crop. Um, and that's just the bottom line. I'm not one to advocate for over-fertilization, but, you know, with prices the way they are this year and with this weather event, I think it's, it's something to consider with that tassel application. If you didn't plan on it, you may want to consider it. And if you, if you had it in your nitrogen budget, you know, maybe consider running a little bit more out there. You've already got the plane in there, you know, running an extra 20 pounds of nitrogen. is They can do that very easily. Um, I know that certainly that's an input to your crop. Um, you need to be, you know, consider that on your budgetary, but denitrification leaching is, is, is bound to happen with nitrogen, with all of our, our um, nutrients with this kind of weather that we have. You know, root growth just in general on soybeans, um, cotton, corn, um, you know, hopefully our corn crop has, has set a good set of roots. Um, we had a pretty good dry spell and, and we're hoping that, that we have a good root system there. But these young beans and this young cotton crop, is, it's going to take an effect on that and just consider that as we go throughout the season, consider that you've already had that effect on some sort of root growth and, and just take that into account with your management plans. Two related questions. Y'all mentioned the potassium on cotton. Same for soybeans. Say, just let me give you a scenario. Say we have a bean field and maybe we did put some P and K out post-emergence. And maybe it's been out there for a few weeks now, but we've had a flood event, so it's relatively close to that application compared with a, a fall application. So it's been it's only been out there for a few weeks. Now the field's flooded. Should we anticipate a K deficiency later in the year because the field called for K, but now we've had a flood event? Yeah, absolutely a valid question. Um, and as we talked about with leaching with all with all these nutrients, especially in a springtime application, it unfortunately it, it occurred to some degree. Um, to that degree is going to vary with how much water field you know, field texture, soil type, a, a lot of things can change that. Um, I think on your sandy soils, you need to 
be concerned with that absolutely on your extremely sandy soils i think you you may need to consider if if you think your yield potential is there and your soybeans are still at i would say v4 to r1 or less growth stage i, I would strongly consider if you're if you can get it out there that you may need to get it out there particularly if you had soil tests that were low could have been in a deficient situation to begin with right i mean with, with the amount of rainfall we have it, it's occurred no way around that unfortunately um it's one of those things that that can vary significantly um you know really across soil types i would say your sandy soils are the ones you need to be particularly concerned with um, on that application just because your heavier textured soils will have the cec to, to kind of hold on to some of that capacity how long should farmers wait to do any sort of a tissue test if they want to base any of those added nutritional needs and i realize that's probably a gray area i'm putting you on the spot there again should they base those types of applications on a tissue test following a flood is that plant going to be growing physiologically as it would have normally if it didn't flood absolutely tom and, and i think you touched on the answer right there with that you need to give it some time for that plant to take those nutrients up we surely hope that they're still available nutrients in the soil but but as of right now i mean basically they you know haven't accumulated anything for a week now and are going to continue as long as that soil is anaerobic which will continue for a few days after this until the sun shines and this water really gets off of those fields there, there's not going to be any nutrient uptake um so if you go out two days after this I can't imagine tissue samples are going to look very good. With that being said, you know, if you give it some time, those tissue samples may catch up. And we hope that most of these crops can catch up. You know, if we, if we were doing a good job with our fertility programs, we had sufficient nutrients out there, they should be able to catch up to this, right? And hopefully we'll put down a good root system. We need to consider this has affected it, but it's still, you know, it's amazing what some of these crops can do. And they'll make up a lot of ground when, it, when the sun comes back out and this water gets off of these fields. But certainly it's going to affect the rest of our growing season. Um, with those tissue samples, as we kind of discussed before, I think it's something to use in context. Don't solely base everything off of that. Um, as, you, as you touched on, you go out there and take a tissue sample. Um, that picture is probably not going to look very pretty. Um, so it's not something I would recommend that you base these future applications off of. Um, if you have time and you can get those and turn around quickly as we go throughout the season, you know, and you're still in a, a realistic growth stage to, to get that done, you know, if you give it a week to 10 days or so, I would say that it, surely it, it would have started to grow back again as it starts to put on new growth. Um, it should be able to give you a, an accurate snapshot of that, but certainly give it a week to 10 days before you run out there and start jumping to conclusions as to what these tissue samples may tell you. We've got Trent Irby on the phone to discuss the flood situation from the soybean standpoint. How are you today, Trent? I'm doing good, man. How are you? Good. Hey, thanks for joining us this afternoon, Trent. So just, you know, we don't know. I mean, it was raining here this morning. And I got out and about some yesterday, and but it's rained a lot uh, since I got back yesterday, so I don't have any idea, you know, what everything looks like right now. And Tom and I have been in here today doing this. So just kind of damage assessment aside, Trent, let's talk about soybeans and flood and the prognosis for soybeans that go underwater. In the kind of situation, just to kind of break it up, there, there's going to be, Cut and dry scenarios where where it's total lost, and you know we have the, the option to, to replant fully in a in 100% kind of situation. Uh, we'll have other areas where we may you know have to decide between keeping 
keeping a part of a field and replanting another part of the field or just keeping it all just depending on the population and then, then we'll have others that uh, you know may weather the storm just depending on on how long it has you know, stayed underwater and soybeans can survive for a little while underwater but um, you know it just just depends on on the situation at hand well and i think a lot of what eric had to say about corn probably goes the same for soybean it, it a is going to depend on whether or not that water is moving b how long that water stays on there and then c you really have to factor in sunlight and or temperature because from what can happen from a pathology standpoint and i won't even go in depth on that at this point but that um that can become a pretty significant situation because in the years where i've been here and people have irrigated and then it got a two inch rain and it was 95 degrees immediately after that with a bunch of sun wherever that water stood you typically ended up with a with a pretty significant phytophthora situation but that's not you know widespread yeah that's exactly right and, and you know again a, a giant it depends kind of answer but it certainly matters a lot how long the water sits on it now, but you're right, it'll definitely matter what, what happens immediately after this water gets off. Trent, how do you manage a field, say you lose those beans on the bottom end, and so now you've got R1 plus beans, but you know, you got big beans on the top of a field and then facing a replant on the bottom end of a field. What are, what are your thoughts on that? What For us, it gets super complicated because we're talking about each individual field being managed with our furrow irrigation management schemes, and, and it's nearly impossible to manage two crops in the same field from an irrigation standpoint. So for, for me, the first thing I'm going to do is, is stand counts. I'm going to I'm going to figure out, you know, some of these will be a clear line. There'll be a clear line in the field between survival and, and reduced stands and, and so forth. So I'm going to figure out that stand count, figure out that population that I'm dealing with, and, and then just make the decision from there. I, Given where we are on calendar date, you know, I, I could I could keep a pretty low population as long as it was fairly uniform and and feel confident that that's the right decision to move forward and manage that for what it is versus trying to tear up and start over a bottom half of the field to keep a, a, a good top half of the field. Not to put you on the spot, how low is pretty low? When we look at all of our replant data, you know, of course that doesn't apply to, to – end of June, 1st of July kind of situation that we're talking about here. But when we look at the replant data, you know, we're comfortable in the springtime keeping down to 60,000 population that's uniform. And even less than that, we were comfortable planning into it. So obviously we've lost that capacity. But the thing to keep in mind is just the drastic reduction in yield potential that we see from a, a complete replant from, you know, we'll, we'll have beans. April planted, early April planted beans through May planted beans impacted, you know, from this flood. So, you know, I, I would I would go down to any any population low enough that stays uniform. I feel like the steel canopy and, and allow me to manage the the weed control coming into the season. But you know, so in my mind, that's that's probably down to fifty thousand or so. What other important considerations are there? I mean, it, it's not just from a standpoint of how this may impact the physiology, but what kind of decisions does somebody have to make if they are going to do a big, large replant situation, whole fields or 
or hold blocks within areas and several fields within that situation that flooded? The first thing that comes to mind is variety availability. I've had lots of calls already just in preparation of, of what we may be dealing with on what what variety to plant, what maturity group should I select, what should I do. As a review, you know, when you get this late into the planting window, we really lose yield advantages from manipulating maturity groups. So the advantage that we would get by manipulating maturity groups this late would be on the maturity time at harvest. So in other words, earlier maturing varieties would still get ready a few days early than late planted varieties, which we all know in the fall time may be worth a lot, depending on what kind of weather we're dealing with then. So what I've been telling the folks that I've talked to so far is, you know, let's look. Let's look at first at staying in a, a, an early to mid, you know, group four kind of range, but let's also target what's available out there with respect to, to top-end yield potential. So if there's any varieties still available that have that better yield potential, you know, that, that genetic potential will play a lot into maintaining positive yields moving forward, even though it will be drastically reduced from what it would have been. So the next thing, I guess, Tom, that comes to mind would be, would be herbicide, and, and I'd like to pose this question to Jason. You know, we think about where we are in the season and the, and the fact that we've got a lot of our first post-emergence applications out and uh, use rates and, and limits on, on the amount of dicamba and things that we can apply. So, Jason, what are your thoughts on that? So I did some checking yesterday. Set Tavium aside because Tavium is the premix of dicamba and esmetolachlor, so the rates are different because it's a, a premix. But if you think about Extendamax and think about Ingenia, so those two products that are just dicamba that are labeled for Extend crops, you got four applications for the year. So in the case of Extendamax, that's 88 ounces, and in the case of Ingenia, that's 51.2 ounces. I think that's right, 12.8 times 4. So the way it was explained to me, and I think the label would bear this out too, Trent, if you have a field that fails and you have to replant it and it's already been treated with dicamba, then that can be considered a pre-plant application to the replanted crop. So obviously it was post-emergence on the previous planting, but on a new replanted crop, it would be a pre-plant application. So if it had only been treated once, then you have up to three applications remaining. So that's the good news. The bad news in the case of soybean is this June 30 cutoff that we're, that's staring us in the face. So the likelihood that a replanted acre is going to, you know, one, get replanted soon enough, and then two, to need a post-emergence application before June 30th is pretty low. I mean, that's three weeks away. So you're looking at getting it dried up, getting whatever plants remain terminated, replanted, up and growing, and then a post-emergence herbicide application. I mean, it's possible, but you're really going to be bumping up against that cutoff date. So that puts you back into our traditional uh, our, our more traditional pre-extend herbicide programs which for the most for most of those acres it's going to be a you know prefix type treatment so something with fomestifen and esmetolachlor in it but consider your cropping plans for next year because fomestifen does have a 10 month rotation interval to corn so you start putting out a bunch of fomestifen in July on a field that you intend to plant corn on in 2022, 
and you really start skating lines there and get down to how much rainfall and what the temperatures are and things like that during the winter of 21-22. A lot of moving parts to the situation for sure. Uh, in, in the conversations I've had on the phone so far, what I've left with guys is any way that we can help, I'm sure I'm glad to. But I think there's going to be a lot of time that we're going to have to do some idea bouncing back and forth to figure out how to handle some of these situations. I agree. Okay, so we'll continue on the cropping topics as they relate to situations specific within each of the crops we grow in the Delta that that are obviously affected by this flood, uh, and we'll discuss some rice issues, and, and Jason and I will we'll cover those topics at we'll, this point. We'll attempt. Right. How, that's much better. We will attempt to cover those topics because I think addressing some of these issues is pretty complex at this point. And, Tom, you're just thinking about what the other guys – have talked about, I think rice is in a better spot than corn or soybeans or cotton as far as being underwater because obviously it is a flood irrigated crop or it it can be flood irrigated. The problem with rice and flooding on seedling rice, which is where the majority of our rice is now, I mean, we have, you know, we have some into the tillering phases, but uh, still relatively young rice, right? I think a problem is when it's submerged, and now, as we've talked about with other crops, if it does warm up tomorrow, Saturday, over the weekend, then it's submerged under hot water. And that can definitely create a problem, just like for the other crops, because you're basically boiling rice in hot water. Another problem that, that I have seen in the past where the water gets deep, but you still have some growth above the water line and that plant you know it stretches and then when the water goes down it falls and it can get caked up in the mud uh, when the water completely recedes and then has a hard time standing back up you know it's shaking shaking the mud off so to speak so that can create a problem with rice but as far as the flooding and the physiology of rice goes it's certainly better off than those upland crops yeah, but you still have some concerns from a herbicide standpoint, which herbicides may no longer be present within the soil profile from a standpoint of residual uh, efficacy at that point, and then your whole fertility issue if yeah. those uh, fertilizer applications have gone out. The herbicides, I wouldn't count on any of them. If you had an application, a soil residual application, and then it's flooded, and then the water recedes, the chances of you realizing much additional residual control from that application is pretty low. I mean, there's no way any of us can predict how much is left out there. So, you know, say you put a pint of command out, do you have a high, half a pint? Do you have a fourth of a pint? No way of knowing, and it doesn't really matter. And so there are situations where you're going to have to shift fire and change your herbicide plan because a lot of those products have maximum rates for the year. So in the case of command, you got two pints. And so if you have a pint out, you got a pint left, so you still have an opportunity there. Uh, but with some other ones, you know, depending on what it is, you may have to adjust fire. We have some options for herbicides, so that's a, a good thing. I wouldn't count on that herbicide that was applied before the field submerged still being there. And I'd say the same for the fertilizer. Justin was here. He talked about it did a much better job of explaining it than I ever could, but I wouldn't count on much of it being there. For example, uh, say it was an ammonium sulfate application, 
you know, to two-leaf rice, which is almost standard for us now, or a ammonium sulfate DAP blend application. I just wouldn't, I wouldn't factor that into my fertilizer budget. Now, then you get into cost, and you get into, it's June the 10th today. Add days to that, however many days it's going to be by the time the water gets off, and then you're kind of doing return on investment ideas in your head. So it's just not a clear situation man and it's it's those decisions are difficult and i think it was trent that said unfortunately you're just going to be down to a field by field basis and the other thing we haven't mentioned with rice on the furrow irrigated rice the row rice fields field wise those are in pretty good shape you know the water's going to run off hopefully the rice will be in pretty good shape when it gets off and take whatever setback is there and then move forward from that point. On the flood irrigated fields, a lot of those levees are going to be really messed up. And so there's going to be some maintenance that has to be done there. Uh, you know, drive made a loop yesterday, several rice fields I saw that you couldn't see the levees. And that's a problem. You know, fortunately where I was, wasn't all the levees, but, you know, say it's the bottom three levees in a 50, 60 acre field. Well, that's a significant amount of work that's going to have to go on to, to fix that issue. Have we set ourselves up for disease problems, Tom? You know, we haven't. We, we mentioned that with corn, and I think you, you had a little blurb with the soybeans, but obviously disease is always a concern in rice, even if it is you know, still relatively early in the life cycle. I wouldn't be too terribly concerned about it. You, you, you got the plants out of the ground, and that I think some of that, that's a pretty gray area. That's not one of those things that's covered in any of those textbooks to talk about, well, if the rice plant gets out of the ground and then it floods for a period of time, what's going to affect from that? I mean, certainly those water-loving organisms will move in those flooded areas, uh, but typically as those plants get a little bit older, they don't necessarily cause that much issue. Uh, I'd be more concerned if, if the sun came out and it did get really, really hot. But I again, I'd, I'd consider that a bigger issue in places where maybe there was a bit more shallow flood than there was in areas where it was deeper. If y'all have hung with us to the end, we know this is a lot longer episode than what you normally expect from us. But you know, we were text back and forth last night and, and talked to everyone else this morning, and we thought that at least bringing you some information – at this point in time would be helpful. So we hope that, uh, you know, something that one of us has said here this morning or, or today, it's afternoon now, has been helpful. And by all means, we're here for y'all. All of us are. You know, the guys that were on earlier and the guys that, you know, that weren't, our entomologists for sure, they're, they're willing to help do whatever they can. So helping y'all make these decisions is, is what we want to do. And so when it comes time for you to start making decisions, if there's something that one of us, if you think one of us could be helpful in, in uh, you know, moving your operation forward, then by all means, just please give us a call and we will do whatever we can to help, you know, move the crop forward in 2021. Yeah, I, I agree because I think in each of these situations, it could be certainly some unique questions that come from this. Uh, and in most cases, you know, a lot of times the information that we have and even the experience sometimes can, can equate to something meaningful. Uh, and certainly right now we're just at a, at a point to address the situation, say, you know, there are a, a lot of questions, certainly. It's difficult to answer all of those at one time, and you certainly shouldn't be making 
uh, knee-jerk responses based on, you know, a passionate situation and really take your time to address some of those concerns. Call us and, and let us help you through some of those uh, more complex situations as they develop in the next days and weeks. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.